We are walking the high altitude steps of the Gospel of John, one of our precious four first century biographies about Jesus. It, it is a remarkable thing that we have four biographies of Jesus. Uh, there is no other figure from antiquity for which we have four biographies written in the same century. I mean, that, that's just extraordinary. And just by way of recap, since this is week three, and some of you haven't been here, I said on week one that all four Gospels um, open with hints of their big theme. So Matthew opens with that famous genealogy of Jesus, linking him to the promises of King David. Mark begins with a simple statement that Jesus is the Messiah, prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Luke opens by stressing the eyewitness testimony behind all this material. And John opens very differently from them all, in as much as he has this long 18-verse prologue, or what you might call, the more musical might call, a prelude, uh, designed to hint at all of the big motifs that resound through the gospel. This explains why we're going so slowly. You may look at the fact that we've only reached the third paragraph and uh, wonder if really we're going to be doing John till 2023. Uh, it's really because it, it, the opening 18 verses are designed deliberately to uh, foretell, as it were, foreshadow the big themes that are to come. So once we get out of the prelude promise, we're going to be zipping through the Gospel of John at a pace. The biggest theme in this prelude is the first one uh, that we saw week one. Uh, John says that the Word of God, the Logos, the rational principle behind this orderly universe has crossed the infinite threshold and entered into history in the person of Jesus Christ. And that really is the dominant theme of the whole of the Gospel of John. Um, the claim is that you're not just reading a biography. You are taking front row seats to the greatest show on earth, God, the Creator, unveiled for all uh, to see. And then uh, last week, uh, week two, we looked at the second paragraph, and we explored the two Johns of John's Gospel. John number one is simply the author, John, and we explored who that author was and what we know about him, and we saw that this is John, son of Zebedee, one of the twelve apostles, an actual eyewitness to all of this material that uh, we're going to be reading. And curiously, we also noted he's called the beloved disciple. Five times he's called the disciple Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple. Um, for the details, you can listen to the podcast from last week. Uh, but I tried to make the point that really we are all to read John's gospel and soak up the love that uh, permeates the whole gospel so that by the end, we know ourselves to be the beloved of Jesus. The second John we looked at last week is John the Baptist, mentioned there in verse 6 of the prelude, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And I made the point that John the Baptist was the biggest deal in first century religion prior to Jesus. Something corroborated by a non-Christian text of the same period. But despite his importance... The prelude makes the point that he was only a witness to the light. He wasn't the light itself. Remember, we made that uh, point uh, firmly because the prelude makes that point firmly. And it actually is a theme that you find all the way through John's Gospel. The, the whole of John's Gospel is really asking you to think, who is the light? 
Who do you think is the true light of the world? Is it John or Jesus? Is it the Pharisees or Jesus? Is it the temple priests or Jesus? Is it the Roman Empire or Jesus? And then we can go into our modern world. Is it the government or Jesus? Is it our psychotherapist or Jesus? Is it our talk show hosts or is it Jesus? Who is the true light that illuminates our world? And today we're looking at the third paragraph, um, which hints at another thing. In fact, a twofold theme that resounds all the way through John's Gospel. And what I want to do is unpack this paragraph and show you how it actually moves all the way through the Gospel of John. Uh, Simultaneously, this is a story of tragic rejection and marvelous acceptance. That's what this paragraph is about. Let me take them in turn. First, tragic rejection. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In other words, after John the Baptist had done his witnessing. He was in the world, since he is the light of the whole world and was there at the creation. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Let's think about this. Imagine being so blind as to not be able to see the light. This is saying, he who illuminated creation in eternity would be missed as he stepped into history. And verse 11, it gets worse, more rejection. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is almost certainly a reference specifically to Israel and more specifically to the leadership of Israel. He came to his own people, the people you would have thought would welcome him as the Messiah, and his own did not receive him. And these lines here in the prelude are setting up for us a theme that tracks all the way through the Gospel of John. This is a story of tragic rejection, especially by those you might have thought would receive him with open arms. Just as John the Baptist, the witness to the light, was rejected in the end, Herod Antipas had him killed, as we saw last week. So the true light itself would be handed over to the Roman authorities by the chief priests of Israel. This is a story of rejection. In fact, 35% of the material in John's Gospel, that's chapters 13 to 19 are set in the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. 35% of this zeroes in on one 24-hour period, the Last Supper, the betrayal, the arrest, the torture, and the crucifixion. It tells you this is a story of rejection. And even before this final day of rejection, there are numerous smaller moments of rejection throughout this whole story. For example, in chapter 6, we're going to learn that there was a period in Jesus' ministry when everyone but the 12 abandoned him. Jesus has preached um, what to us looks like a wonderful sermon, uh, but people found it outrageous because he talks about um, eating him, right? People would go, what? You're crazy. We're out of here. And we read that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. 
And Simon Peter beautifully answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They're beautiful words. But the majority has rejected Jesus. In chapter 10, we learn that people in his day thought he was demon-possessed or raving mad. Our Jesus rejected as crazy. And we also learn in chapter 9 and 12 that even during Jesus' lifetime, people were being kicked out of the synagogues if they were saying Jesus is the Messiah. And people were terrified about this. And we actually know that people began to come to Jesus secretly for fear that they'd be kicked out of the synagogue. Every follower of Jesus Christ has to work out whether they are willing to live in such a story. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. And this is a key to reading the whole of John's Gospel, actually, because some of the stuff in John's Gospel will confront you. I bet by the time we get to chapter 5, you're going, oh, he really said this? Can't we just have the be nice to people stuff from the Sermon on the Mount? And you're going to stop and think, man, if I take this stuff seriously... I might be rejected by friends and family and neighbours. Yeah. So John is prepping us in the prelude. This is a story of rejection. But it's also a story of marvellous acceptance, which is precisely what he says in verses 12 and 13. Many other people accept Christ and become God's children. Verse 12 of the prelude. Yet, despite all this rejection, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Suddenly we're back to those uh, heavenly heights of John's gospel, and now we're thinking about being born of God. This part of the prelude is telling us that the key invitation of the whole of the Gospel of John is, will you come and be born of God? Will you become God's child? That's the offer. And this is setting up one of the most famous scenes in John's Gospel. Also one of the most theologically profound of John's Gospel. We'll get there, chapter 3, where Jesus has a conversation with a Pharisee called Nicodemus, who also happens to be a member of the 70-person ruling council of Judea, who comes to Jesus privately and has a little conversation about what it means to follow him. And Jesus says those very confronting words, Truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again born again. That language creeps us out as good Anglicans, doesn't it? Aren't the born-agains those American fundamentalists? It's not us. We're the level, measured Anglicans, not born-agains. Except Jesus says you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, so we're kind of stuck with it, right? It's clearly not the dominant language of the New Testament, but it is real. Every Christian, by definition, is a born again. Becoming a Christian isn't merely about being raised in the West or 
brought up in church or adopting the Christian ethical system or uh, taking up the philosophy of Christianity. No, you can have all of that and not see the kingdom of God because you are not born again. Becoming a Christian is a miracle of new life, stepping out of death into life as God's child. This is why John insists back in verse 13 of the prelude that it's not a matter of, see those words, natural descent nor human decision or a husband's will. I know that sounds sort of weird language, but they're expressions deliberately targeting Jewish theology in the first century, which precisely said you are a child of God if you're born of a Jewish family or if a Jewish father adopts you into the family, which was always the husband's decision, right? They said you are a child of God if you're a member of a Jewish family. Now, the gospel insists, Jesus insists, we, we can't even, you, know, you certainly can't blame the preacher, you can't blame the author John, Jesus said to a Pharisee with the best religious credentials of all, you can't even see this stuff unless you are born again. The gospel insists the only way to be God's child, whether Jew or Gentile, is, as he says in verse 12, to receive him to those who believed in his name. That's Jesus' name. He gave the right to become the children of God. I find this such an amazing use of language. Um, rights language normally is something that you inherently have, right? I mean, I there's so many lawyers here, I'm probably stepping out of my uh, expertise, clearly. Uh, but a right is something you normally can say, oh, I have this. But, but this is a right that you get given. But I find that interesting. You are given this right. You don't get it automatically. You are given the right. And, but I think this is what this is saying is, once you're born again, once God has said, by grace, I give you this free gift, now it's your right. Now you can claim it. You never have to worry about it. It's a right that is given as a gift. And all of this prepares us for the marvelous stories of acceptance throughout John's gospel. Already by the end of chapter 1, we're getting these beautiful stories of people receiving Jesus and believing Jesus. So uh, come with me to the end of chapter 1, and you get the calling of the first disciples. And Andrew believes, and Peter believes, and Philip believes. And then in verse 47, the lovely story of Nathaniel. Nathaniel believes, verse 47 of chapter 1, when uh, Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, which is weird because they've never met. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And now this is really feeling weird. And Nathaniel just gives up and says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you, I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. But he, the key language is believe. He believes. He's doing exactly what the prelude says some people do. But if we go a couple of pages on, we get the most remarkable story of acceptance of Jesus, probably in... Uh, the whole of John's gospel, though 
I, th- I think that it's sort of a tie between chapter 4 and chapter 8, but you know, we'll get to all of that. But this is where Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman. Did you catch that? A Samaritan woman. Jews don't talk to Samaritans because they're regarded as religious heretics and traitors. And um, Jewish males do not talk to um, unknown females. But here is Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman, and I can't wait till we get there uh, because we're going to see that Jesus crosses these boundaries and talks to this Samaritan woman about her five husbands that she's had. Okay, uh, this is a little bit like the Nathaniel trick. Okay, he, he knows already. She has five sons, and he knows that she's now got to live in lover. Okay, and but but Jesus doesn't come down on her. You know what he says? Really, what you're looking for is the water of eternal life. That's what you're searching for. And she is so s- struck by this, she believes. And as the story unfolds, it's fantastic because it's a ripping long chapter. The whole of chapter four dedicated to this. She convinces her whole Samaritan town to believe. And we read at the end of chapter 4, many of the Samaritans from that town believed because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. It's unthinkable, but he did. And because of his words, many more became believers and thus were born again on page after page through this gospel. We meet people, often unlikely people, who receive Jesus, trust Jesus, and are born again. This is a story of rejection, and it's a story of acceptance. And we need to prepare for both. So I have two simple questions for us as I close. One, The gospel is a story of tragic rejection. Are you willing to live in such a story? The skepticism and opposition to Christianity in the West, in Australia, seems to be hotting up. That's not just my imagination, is it? Are others feeling this? Now, I want to say some of it we've brought on ourselves. Did you hear me say that? Some of it we've brought on ourselves, seriously, because of our arrogance and our judgmentalism as a church, our institutional and individual hypocrisy on a grand scale. And if you can't see that, you probably won't understand the skepticism, let alone reach the skeptic. It's partly our fault, but some of the rejection that we experience isn't the church's fault. It's because a darkness seems to have descended on our culture. Actually, John, in his little, his own commentary in the uh, middle of chapter 3, following the Nicodemus incident, John, the author John, says, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, that's Jesus obviously, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. The darkness of our own day is real and takes many forms. Um, There's a willful forgetfulness 
and even rewriting of the massive, beautiful contribution of Christianity to Western culture. More than that, there's this new foggy thinking that seems to have come upon us um, about ultimate questions. It was the great Francis Bacon in the 16th century, uh, the father of the modern scientific method. Francis Bacon said, a little, a, uh, sorry, a, a, a little philosophy inclines someone toward atheism. Depth in philosophy inclines us to religion. I think that's so true, and I think we have entered into an era, perhaps especially in Australia, of desperately little philosophy. It is tragic, the kinds of arguments that are convincing people to be atheists today. I often find myself wishing to bring back the old atheists, because the shallow, facile reasons people are moving to atheism today is just tragic. It's like a darkness. It's like an intellectual fog that's come upon us. And there's a moral dimension to this darkness as well. In fact, John says as much. People want to do their dark deeds, and that's why they don't believe the light. And I think that's true of us. In our culture today, we think of ourselves as the most enlightened people in world history. We really do. We just think that, you know, because we invented the iPhone, you know, we're also at the, at the forefront of ethics in world history. But we have some dramatic blind spots. Proof of darkness. I'll give you just a couple of examples. Perhaps this is controversial, but I think it's clear. We comfort ourselves as a culture that we are champions of women's rights. And in a sense, that's true. Yet, we as a culture increasingly support what is arguably the greatest objectification of women in world history. It's called pornography. The best research, there's some silly research, but the best research says 14% of all internet searches in the West are for pornography. 14%. And I'm sorry to say it, guys, 95% of those searches are men wanting to drool at women. I put it to you that no other society in 2,000 years in the Western tradition would have thought that was morally plausible. Or, to take a very different example, we flick our $222 per household per year to charity. That's the figure. $222 per household per year. That's from three different sources. But we also know, and I've outlined this before, the Australian household spends 14 times more on restaurant and takeaway meals, 37 times more on what the ABS classifies as recreation, which doesn't even include holidays. It's just things like Foxtel subscriptions, gym memberships, the golf club membership, and so on. 37 times more on recreation than on charitable giving. And I put it to you again, no other society in the last 2,000 years of Western culture will have thought that is morally justifiable. It's a darkness. And it's because people love these things that they are repelled. 
by Christianity. Yes, some of our society's rejection of us is our fault. Okay? I know you know that I believe that. But I also really believe that part of it is our society's fault. Part of it is because people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The question we all have to face is, are you willing to stand for the light in a dark world that can't even see the light because it loves the darkness? Will we slink off from Christ because the Sydney Morning Herald seems to be bashing us over the head on a daily basis? Or because your friends and neighbours think you're nuts for following Jesus? Or because the new politics seems to be pushing Christianity to the margin? Or will you cheerfully stare down the rejection and with the twelve say, to whom else will we go? You, Lord, have the words of eternal life. The other question is equally challenging and much quicker. The gospel is a story of marvelous acceptance. Are you willing to play your part in that story? Uh, The most obvious dimension of this question for me as a preacher is to look out to you and say, I apologize, but I have to ask, are you born again? I don't mean, do you like Christianity? Are you attracted to it? Do you think the morals are jolly sensible? Do you think this community is kind of loving and cool? You like the philosophy of there being some nebulous God? I don't mean that. Are you born again? Do you know you've stepped out of death into life? By genuinely trusting Jesus Christ. And assuming that is the case for most of us, of course. The next dimension of the question is, are you on about the business of Jesus? Are you on about the business of Jesus? This is a story of marvelous acceptance. This is Jesus going out into the world to convince people to believe. According to the prelude, the whole point of Jesus coming into the world was to give people the right to be children of God. That's the whole point. Jesus is the ultimate evangelist. The church didn't invent evangelism, you know, a few years after Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate evangelist. Whether he's trying to engage in conversation with an intellectual like Nicodemus or trying to sort of uh, woo this Samaritan woman to see what, what, what is her greatest need and her greatest satisfaction, whatever the conversation is, Jesus is trying to convince people to believe and become children of God. Actually, this is precisely why John wrote his gospel. It's not just Jesus. John's on about this too. At the end, we'll you know, get there sometime uh, in chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs. This is John the writer now saying. Performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. But these are written. In other words, I've selected all these ones for you. That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. John, the writer, is an evangelist. Will you play your part in this story? I'm not saying we're all evangelists, no. 
But we can all pray for our neighbors that they might come to know Jesus, can't we? We can all do that. We can all give generously to causes we know are proclaiming the gospel out there. We can do actions in society that convey the love of God practically. And, yes, we can speak up when it's appropriate. We can say, yeah, I'm one of those. And sometimes it will bring rejection. And in in those times, you just cheerfully accept it because it's the story we're in. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We are in this story of rejection and acceptance. Are you playing your part? You may have seen during the week, because it was on the ABC News, in fact, ABC was the only outlet to cover it. A hundred Christians were arrested in China last Sunday as we were meeting happily here. A hundred were arrested. What you may not have known is that this is the very network we've been supporting for six years in Chengdu. These are the the very guys we've been supporting the training of. Uh, uh, Forty of them were released, sixty are still in prison, uh, including this guy who's the head of the network, Pastor Wang Yi, um, and I just heard yesterday that his wife has now been detained for subversion. Pastor Yi saw it coming because things have been hotting up, as you know, in China. And he wrote a letter which he asked to be um, translated and published if he was longer than 48 hours in detention. Well, that time has well passed. And on Wednesday, uh, the network that we've been supporting that supports these Chengdu guys uh, released the letter. Now, it's online. I thoroughly recommend you read it. It's an amazing epistle from a guy who knew he was about to be thrown in prison. But let me just close with some of the paragraphs that Wang Yi wrote. The mission of the church is only to be the church and not to become part of any secular institution. The church must separate itself from the world and keep itself from being institutionalized by the world. All acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. We must obey God, not men. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who turn from their sins. This is the goal of all the efforts of the Church of China to testify to the middle kingdom, Zongguo, the central kingdom, that's what Chinese call China, about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about heavenly, earthly, uh, sorry, heavenly eternal life. If I am imprisoned for long or short period, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith and of my saviour, I am joyfully willing to help them in this way. I hope God uses me to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that cannot be restrained. Those who interrogate me will finally be judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief for those imprisoning me. Please pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me 
patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us all. He is my King, the King of the whole earth. I am His servant. I am in prison for this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God. I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God. Let's not just pray for our Chinese brothers and sisters. Let's cheerfully walk into this world in all its skepticism and opposition for the light, not worrying about the darkness. The gospel is a story of tragic rejection. Are you willing to live in such a story? The gospel is a story of marvelous acceptance. Are you willing to play your part in this story? Father, will you please help us in our weakness and fears through the power of your Spirit to live for you, to walk in the darkness knowing that Christ is the light. Help us, Lord, to love and serve this world, whatever it does or says to us. Help us, Lord, as a church, as individuals, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might see many who accept the Lord Jesus and become your children, Father. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.